Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we bring you a new tidbit from history every day. The day was April 1st, 1960. From Cape Canaveral, Florida, NASA and its partners launched the weather satellite Tyros-1, short for Television Infrared Observation Satellite, at 6.40 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. That day, Tyros-1 sent back the first-ever television picture from space. In 1960, the space race was gaining momentum as the United States and the Soviet Union competed for dominance in spaceflight advancement. The nations were launching satellites and lunar probes and sending humans into space. The Tyros program began in this climate. At the time, it still was not clear how effective satellite observations were, so scientists were tasked with developing a meteorological satellite information system that could reliably forecast weather and help people make important weather-based decisions, like disaster warnings. Tyros-1, the satellite that kicked off the Tyros program, was the first satellite launched for remote sensing of Earth. Its launch marked the first time Earth scientists could continuously view the whole planet and observe weather conditions from space. Tyros-1 was designed to test the feasibility of using television pictures to monitor Earth's cloud cover and weather patterns from satellites. It had two TV cameras to photograph cloud cover, one with a wide-angle view and the other with a narrow-angle view. The cameras were slow-scan devices that took a snapshot once every 10 seconds. Once the pictures were taken, they were sent back to a ground-receiving station or stored in a tape recorder on board for playback later, depending on the location of the satellite. Tyros-1 wasn't always pointed at Earth, and it could only function in daylight. There were two Command and Data Acquisition, or CDA, stations for Tyros-1. One at the Army Signal Corps lab in Belmar, New Jersey, and the other at the U.S. Air Force facility at Kaina Point, Hawaii. In addition to these, an engineering and backup station was at the RCA plant in Heightstown, New Jersey, where Tyros was built. Once the pictures were received at the CDA station, they were recorded on 35mm film so prints and large projections could be made. Using the prints and projections, a hand-drawn cloud analysis called a NEF analysis was made, and then a facsimile was sent to the U.S. Weather Bureau National Meteorological Center near Washington, D.C. The launch of Tyros-1 was scheduled for 5.44 a.m., but it was an hour late, according to NASA Administrator T. Keith Glennon. Glennon said in the book The Birth of NASA, The Diary of T. Keith Glennon, It was a picture taken obliquely, looking westward from New Jersey toward the center of the country, and revealed a cyclonic disturbance that was actually in being at that time. Naturally, everybody was excited. The first pictures taken were presented to U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, who scolded Glennon for getting the first photo on April Fool's Day. Tyros-1 died from an electrical failure in mid-June 1960, after working for only 78 days. But during its time in operation, it transmitted 19,389 pictures that were used in weather operations. 
And the Tyros project continued. The initial Tyros series ran until 1967, when Tyros 10 was deactivated. After that, NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration launched a next-generation satellite series with technological improvements, like higher-resolution imaging. Now, weather satellites and meteorological observation are far more sophisticated. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Here's a note on that first TV picture from space. So there's a picture that goes around that's commonly labeled as the first picture, but it's not actually the first picture. It's the one that was taken on the afternoon of April 2nd. That April 2nd picture showed a fuzzy black and white image of Maine and Canada's maritime provinces. It's not quite clear why this misidentification happened, but it could be because it was selected as the best photo for public relations and then misinterpreted by the media. If you haven't gotten your fill of history after listening to today's episode, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey y'all, it's Eves, and welcome to another episode of This Day in History Class, a show that uncovers a little bit of history every day. The day was April 1st, 1940. Environmental and political activist Wangari Maathai was born. Maathai was the first African woman to win the Nobel Prize. Matai was born in Niri, Kenya, and raised in an area that was known as the White Highlands. She was the daughter of Kikuyu subsistence farmers, and she had five siblings. Her older brother convinced her parents that she should go to school rather than focus on work around the house. So she went to the Atite Primary School, St. Cecilia's Intermediate School, then Laredo Limuru Girls School. After finishing school there and getting a scholarship, she went to the U.S. to study at Mount St. Scholastica College in Kansas. At the time, the Kennedy administration was funding East Africans to study at American colleges as colonialism in East Africa was ending, and many Kenyans went to study at U.S. universities. Matai got her bachelor's degree in biology in 1964, then her master's from the University of Pittsburgh. By the time she returned to Kenya, the country had gained its independence from the British Empire and become an independent republic. Matai was recruited to be a research assistant in zoology at the University of Nairobi, but she was denied the position because of what she believed to be gender discrimination. Soon, though, the university hired her as a research associate in the Department of Veterinary Anatomy. In 1971, she got her doctorate from the University of Nairobi. She worked her way up at the institution, becoming a senior lecturer, then chair of the Department of Veterinary Anatomy, then an assistant professor. The research she took on made her more aware of the environmental issues of Kenya, especially those in rural areas. Matai married a Nairobi businessman in 1969, and the couple eventually had three kids together. They ended up getting a divorce in the 1980s, 
but his involvement in politics and advocacy for finding jobs for unemployed people led her to link her work and interest to employment opportunities. Bataille started a business called EnviroCare, which involved people planting trees as a way to help the environment and create jobs. The business did not last, but it did help lead her to a new tree planting project called Save the Land Harambe, which turned into the Greenbelt Movement. The Greenbelt Movement was focused on tree planting for poverty reduction and environmental conservation. Throughout her life, Matai remained dedicated to environmental causes. Deforestation was causing soil runoff and water pollution. It was increasing poverty, reducing the amount of vegetation livestock had to eat, and causing children to have to eat more processed foods. Matai aimed to combat these effects through the Greenbelt Movement, which planted millions of trees, gave small payments to people who planted and preserved trees, and provided services like workshops on family planning and nutrition. The organization spread to countries across the African continent and soon extended its influence to other nations around the world. Matai was also active in politics. In 1989, she protested against the construction of an enormous office tower in Nairobi, leading investors to withdraw their support from the project. She opposed the one-party state and the leadership of Kenyan President Daniel Arap Moi. Her opposition and outspokenness did earn her the ire of Moi and other government officials who disliked the Greenbelt Movement's pro-democracy positions. Still, Matai was elected to parliament in Kenya in 2002 and was appointed Assistant Minister for Environment, Natural Resources, and Wildlife. In 2004, Matai got the Nobel Peace Prize for her, quote, contribution to sustainable development, democracy, and peace. She died from complications of ovarian cancer in 2011. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you want to send us a note on social media, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at T-D-I-H-C podcast. You can also send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.